This week's guest is right up there in the kingdom of documentary royalty. His work has seen him come face to face with everyone from the so-called most hated family in America to members of the survivalist movement. And he does so with his signature style, which inevitably resulted in plenty of iconic and memorable moments. While he spent a significant amount of time all over the world, mainly the States, I, of course, wanted to hear more about his relationship with this great city. Welcome to This City, the podcast that reveals the stories, hidden gems and certified spots tried and tested by some of London's most recognisable names. Now, whether they were born or bred in the capital or have made it their second home, London absolutely holds a key piece of their heart. And this week, it's Louis Theroux. Louis Theroux. Hello. <laughs> Welcome to my podcast. Thank you very much for coming through. Pleasure. The great thing is about my podcast is that it's me talking to people that I like and respect. And it's about a place I love, which is London. Fantastic. And you are the first guest that I have had who has cycled into work. Yeah. Because, dear listener, I like to take care of the people that come through. I like to offer a car, but yeah. you politely declined. Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Why do you like to cycle so much? Well, I've always liked cycling. I think London and bikes go together like peaches and cream. There we go. <laughs> now, in the sense that you can't always count on buses because they get stuck in traffic. Tubes are fine, but the stops aren't always close to where you want to be. Cars are obviously hopeless. So basically, bikes are where it's at, as far as I'm concerned. And plus, you get fit and you always know what time you're going to, you're going to arrive because you're never held up by anything. On every front, I, I consider it the best way of doing things. Are you afraid to cycle in London? I mean, I mean, obviously, you just told me why you love to cycle London but do you still do you have a fear when cycling in London? I'm not afraid enough I think because I I can be a little bit reckless. There's only a couple of roads that worry me in London. Right. I mean occasionally Euston Road can get a little bit Ooh, dodgy. Oh yeah that's a lot. When I lived in LA. Cash. <laughs> I, uh, yes you do. Um, I um, I cycled around LA and that is quite scary yeah. because the cars go so fast and they do, they're not used to meet, seeing cyclists on the road. They either don't make any concessions for you, like by going incredibly fast, or they look at you as though you're some kind of species, like a wild animal that's been released. Like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, what are you doing? Do you know what I mean? Well, because everyone's in an Uber or, or driving no, themselves, driving. basically. Yeah. Everyone's driving. Yeah. So uh, compared with LA, London is perfectly safe. I mean, you don't have to mind. give me your, your postcode, but what, what's your route? Like, what, what are the things you enjoy taking happy, in on your sort of... I'll be happy of, to give you my postcode. It great. doesn't narrow it down that much. NW6. <laughs> okay, NW6. Which would be... Uh, that is not Camden because that's NW1 you you're stalling oh my god let's stop stop it I'm saying you are Kenzel Rice that's NW10 okay come on then alright postcode king oh no it's not far off NW6 is basically Kilburn Queens Park alright okay so today what's your postcode I'm in I'm in E8 you should have said E8 and then tested me to see if I knew where it was damn so if you if you're from E8, is there a snappy moniker for that? Like I'm just from Hack. I just I don't, well, people, I say, I'm not know, from Hack. People say N Dubs, right? But, yeah. But is there no? Does that not exist for any any other postcode? I haven't heard any nicknames for Hackney, and I no, I heard one sort of raw guy on the bus once call it Hackers, which I which literally made me physically recall. You didn't like that Hackers. I don't I don't like that. But I I've I been, was try. I grew up in Wandsworth, which never really had a. Um, 
SW18, S dubs. We didn't really, you know, in American rap, it was always, oh, I'm from Sacktown, or you know what I mean? They were yeah. in general, Shy Town. You, you, they were like Dirty South. Dirty South. Yeah. And so in London, but we didn't really, in London, we struggled with that. I had friends who lived in Putney, so I tried to, for <laughs> a while, using rhyming slang, saying, like, you're going over to Mango, Mango Chutney. Really? Yeah, it didn't catch on. I actually know what, that doesn't surprise me. It did me. not catch on. Yeah, I came so. in for, on the bike from NW6. I went down to Shepherd's Bush where I'm working at the moment mm-hmm. and then cycled up. It was like a 15-minute cycle up from um, from Shepherd's Bush. Lovely. And when you are... Do you cycle? I do cycle. I, I, like, I like to cycle quite a lot, but I have to admit I've gotten a bit, I've gotten a bit more hesitant over the years, especially in the area that I live in Hackney. There are so many... Um, accidents that happen and sadly fatalities no. with cyclists. It's, it's. I, I don't. I don't as much as I used to. But is I it do lorries? Are they colliding with lorries? People, yeah, like just lorries with with pedestrians. People just not 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 watching themselves. I have to ask you. Do you wear a helmet? Please tell me yes. No, I don't. I, do you know? I'm looking into the corner yeah, of the room I where don't. your stuff is. I don't, and I can't see. And well. I know that a lot of people, especially friends and my wife too, they're not happy about that. Yeah. I, I wish I had a really good reason. The only good reason I can give you is that I've been cycling my whole life, more or less, you know, around, you know, when I was 11, I used to cycle, 11 or 12, I used to cycle from Wandsworth all along the Upper Richmond Road to a school in East Sheen, which is, you know, four or five miles each way. I don't really like, I do have lights. I do wear a fluorescent jacket as you, as we can, can we see it over there? Like I came in wearing it. So I'm not, I'm not a danger freak. I'm not trying to get knocked over. It isn't how you get your kicks. No, it's not like I'm all about minimum visibility and maximum exposure. It's not that. <laughs> it's much more that I try and make my life as simple as possible. And a helmet just seems to be one more complicating factor that I'm, I'm going to lose or not, you know, I don't know. I mean, they are drag a bit of a drag around. to, to carry around. around. Do you know but... as well, like two weeks ago, I got my bike stolen, two different bikes in one week. Uh, I left my lock at home. I bought a cheap little lock. I locked up my bike in Soho. The bike was nicked. I was so annoyed. I went straight out to a secondhand shop for £150. I bought another one secondhand, went out. I bought another crappy lock. I cycled into Soho. And that one was nicked. So in the space of about 48 hours, I had two bikes stolen. And Louis, what is the moral of the story? Buy a good lock. Exactly. Get a good lock. Or don't go to Soho. Yeah, you can't tell people that. Yeah. Do you know the title of this podcast? (laughs) Yeah, and I do love Soho. And so it it was slightly heartbreaking. Do you you think that people may have noticed that it was your bike? I doubt it. It'd be nice to imagine that because then I could just go on eBay and search uh, Louis Theroux's bike for sale, (laughs) right? That would make it easier to track down. But this is life. This is life. People steal things and and it's not very nice. I try not to get overly attached. I sort of take the view that maybe they really needed it or maybe that they were um, really struggling. You know, but that being said, yeah. other than that, I love bikes. I love cycling mm-hmm. around and you, it, it makes you feel good, doesn't yeah. it? It makes you feel good about um, connecting with your body. You listen to a podcast. Yeah, that's my naughty confession. Yeah. I shouldn't, but I do. I do listen to music and podcasts. Do you dr- do you drink and bike? No, that I don't do. I suspect. <laughs> Is that something you do, Louis? I have done it. Okay. How's I don't, that recomm- I don't recommend you? doing it. Okay. I don't know. It's a good feeling. You feel quite free, don't yeah, you? Yeah, you feel very free. No, do you know what? I, I'd be lying if I said I may 
have not experienced yeah. what you're talking about. Yeah. Don't do that, listeners. Don't do that. Um, biking aside, I do like to ask everybody who comes through a simple question of, do you still take the tube? Because most people that we talk to on the show are recognisable names or faces, but you've got that thing where, you know, look, you haunt me on the tube. Your bloody face is everywhere. I'm on posters at the you, moment. You, you really I've got are. a book out. Hey, that's a good place to plug my book. <laughs> Got to get through this. It's Saw being, the poster on Oxford Circus it's being advertised. That's the first time I've been on, on posters. I say that like, well, everyone else has got their face on posters. But that's exciting to have your face on a poster being annoying, you know, to people who are having to look at your mug while they wait for their late train. Um, so you do still get the tube. Yes. And um, what is that experience like for you? Most of the time, it's 100% fine. And in fact, if you commute by tube, which I do on occasion, uh, or, or if I'm going somewhere quite far, like especially because I'm near the Jubilee Line, if I have to take a train in the southeast, I go down to London Bridge on the Jubilee. Jubilee Line's so quick. It's, it it's, feels it's like quite, the future. It's quite a temptation going, which bit? The Jubilee specifically. Just just the way it's laid out. Uh, I think you feel well, like you're those, in a spaceship. Those, like, is it Richard Rogers or whoever the architect that did the Westminster stop and then... Uh, it's, it's incredible, isn't yeah. it? And I think the Southwark one is like that. Yeah. There's a few of them that are straight out of Metropolis, the Fritz Lang film. Yeah, right? exactly. It's beautiful. Like If someone had to ask me my top 10 sort of London architectural triumphs, Let that would be on there. You. That would be on there. I couldn't say what the other nine were. Okay, you want to give me another three? Uh, another three would be... Um, let me think. I like the Hawksmoor churches. I like the Greenwich, was it Maritime uh, Museum? Oh, they, fil- Naval, they, they Naval filmed College. four there. They, yeah. they filmed four and a few other bits there, didn't Don't they? I don't know. But the, the Greenwich Naval College, the Chelsea Pensioners Building, that might be on there. Do you know the one I mean? I don't. I like St Pancras. Everyone probably says St Pancras. I mean, yes, yeah, it's, it's lovely. And also that's where the Spice Girls Hotel is, isn't it? Well, that's what I call it. Is it? Why yeah. do you call it that? Because that's where they shot Wannabe. Really? So you know the bit when they're um, they're going down the stairs, yeah. they're doing the big old routine. It's in the hotel of St Pancras, and I've still yet to get my. Everyone, everyone does it now. You go, you go and get a picture on the stairs and pretend to be your Spice Girl of choice. Right. So we spoke about the tube. Oh yeah, you. Yeah. So yeah. Oh yeah. So the so question when, was your, your question was to do with, but I th- actually, yeah. what you find is um, commuting is fine. People just got their heads down. They're looking at their copy of the Metro or their phones, and no one really pays you any notice. Evenings, especially Friday night, Saturday night, Thursday night, when people are coming back late from their shindigs, they are much more garrulous, much more, uh, much less inhibited, and they will notice you. And so you get a lot more feedback and chat, which can be quite nice. Sometimes it turns into like a little mini, one person starts talking to you, like, I've got to say, I like your programs. And then someone else says, I wasn't going to say anything, but highlight your programs as well. (laughs) And then you get a little chat, like a salon going. Once or twice, it's been quite a special little sharing encounter where you all sit around and talk about this and that. Oh, where are you on your way from? Oh, really? What's that like? And then everyone chips in. You did, I say recently, but I guess, you know, in comparison to how long your career has been a thing, Instagram. Yes. How's yeah. that been for you, Louis? Well, okay. True confession. My wife drove that. She's um, <laughs> she's only four years younger than I am. So um, we're definitely the same generation. And yet where social media is concerned, she's more of a millennial, whereas I'm more of a boomer, I would say. Like, in other okay, words, boomer. she's much more... <laughs> my kids say that to me constantly. It's so annoying. She's much more... Um, 
she was into Instagram. She got me into Twitter and then she always gets me into something like that was about 10 years ago, whatever. But then she moves on to the next thing. So she moves on to Instagram or whatever it is. So she said, like, you really should be on Insta. And I said, all right, you sign me up. So I, I do it a bit, but I, it's not my, you can, I can only really keep one social media thing going at any one time. Otherwise it becomes too, too preoccupying. But so how has it been? It's been good. It's been good. You get a lot more engagement. Have you noticed? Yeah. Like I've got 2 million Twitter followers. It's not a boast. It's a fact. Um, okay. And I've got, well, I don't know, like 200,000 on, I don't know, something like that on Instagram. And yet if I post something on Twitter, if it gets you know, a few thousand likes, that's quite good. The most I've had is about 25,000, but that's unusual. On Insta, you get more or less 10,000, 15,000 for everything you stick up there. Casual. Cash. Cash as you please. I think I feel like you should become a hashtag influencer. Well... Do a bit of SponCon. I haven't done it. I've resisted any kind of advertising. I, I wouldn't say I'd never do it. Occasionally I've got friends... Without naming any names, who just who just say, "Oh, you should just do it." They you got you put something on there. They just sent me a free computer. I, I, it doesn't sit right with me at the moment. I mean, obviously, if you say that you got it free, then I guess that's fine. Are you big on Insta? Um, you know, I have my moments. How on many Insta? followers? I'm not. I'm not, I haven't, I'm not in the millions like you. Uh, no, no, I don't have millions on Insta. I got. I got a few hundred thousand. Really? Do you think you've got? You've probably sounds like you've got more than me. How many? Have you no, got? you've de- you've definitely got more than me on Insta. I don't think so. I've only been doing it a couple of I, months. I'm almost embarrassed at, at, at my. I've number only posted about yours. fifteen times on Insta. We're, let's have an Insta showdown. Oh God, I'm definitely going to lose. And then is this, this is like the, top trumps. Oh God, it is, isn't it? At this point, I've got oh. 110,000. Oh. Yeah, you definitely see, I I've told you. I've got 148,000. Well, how about that? Oh, I'm so Can't sorry. Can't all be a national treasure, can we, hon? I guess not. Guess not. I thought not. maybe we could, but... have you? So you do SponCon? I do a bit here and there, but I only do things. Don't look at me like that. I only... Je- oh, I you gen- even know that phrase? Is that, is that a well-known Insta phrase? Well, yeah, SponCon. I only... What have you spawn Um, What have I done? Uh, Nike. I just turned it into a verb. Uh, SponCon. Um, Nike, because I generally do only wear their trainers. God, you're advertising now. It's sick. Stop you it. You asked me. Be real. You asked me. Cut loose those strings. Speak from a real place. I Talk about what you really real like, place. not because you're paid to plug something. Oh my god, that was that was entrapment. <laughs> that was that was verbal entrapment. How very dare you? Are there any other stories in the city, particularly that you want to uncover? Because you know, a lot of us know you from the work that you do yeah. it, that you've done in America. Yeah. But you know, there is there's a plethora of stories to be told in the UK. Off the top of my head, the only uh, hour-long doc that I filmed in London was the one, it was called Drinking to Oblivion, and it was about people who drink, you know, life-threatening amounts of alcohol. And that was largely in southeast London near um, Denmark Hill area, because that's where the hospital was. It's funny because for the kind of filmmaking I do where you get quite close with people for, for a concentrated period of time, and then afterwards... You should have to disengage and go back to making the other programs, moving on, being with your own family and whatnot. It sometimes is helpful to be able to put some distance between yourself and the subject, which, which sort of explains, I suppose, why maybe I haven't done it more. Like I lived in Halston for 15 years and um, there's, a, there's, a, there's an amazing number of stories in Halston. Halston's such a 
cosmopolitan and vibrant and in some ways maddening place. It's got a reputation for having a high crime rate. I don't know if that's necessarily the truth. There's certainly quite a lot of sort of ambient level um, antisocial behaviour. When you sort of are um, trying to put your kids to bed and like there's a fight breaking out outside your house, you know, you, you suddenly all your liberal tolerance slightly disappears, and you're like, "Do you know what, guys? Can you keep it down? Because there's kids up here, and and they're trying to go to sleep." And then you get a bit of aggro back, and and pretty soon you've sort of turned into a Daily Mail caricature of the white guy kind of shouting out of his window. I mean, I was going to say you read my mind. Yeah, I mean, I talk about this in my book. I, you know, when I grew up, I used to smoke quite quite a lot of. Um, hash like i would score it in west london usually around portobello road and then sometimes later on around armory way in wandsworth right then when it turns out like so when it happens on your own street you so, it's a slightly different attitude like when you suddenly it's like hang on i can't really have an issue with people selling weed or whatever it is on my street because that was what I did. You know, I bought it. So so that would be a bit, bit hypocritical. See, this is really interesting because one of the recurring themes that has come up uh, talking to people doing this podcast, and I think, you know, it's a... It's it, it's an awkward but I think needed conversation is yeah. that of gentrification, yeah. what is happening to London because, yeah. you know, you very clearly are a white middle class How man. How dare you? I'm sorry, How but... How dare you? I think, I, think so you're, I think you're white, Louis. I think you might just be middle class. Okay, fair enough. Um, you, know, you lived in Halsworth for 15 years, as yeah, you said. Yeah. How confident did you feel moving into an area that has been historically, you know, black and brown, you know, West Indian, West, West African, and sort of immersing yourself in that culture and, and in that community in a way that still felt respectful, but mm-hmm. not sort of, uh, not colonial? Do you understand what I mean by that? I do, yeah, yeah. I do, yeah, I do. God's honest truth is I didn't overly worry about it. I also realised, I think, that um, it's such a robust community. Like, I didn't feel as though I was part of some kind of onslaught. Like, you could go to Harlesden now. It's changed a bit, but it's... um, sort of historic Afro-Caribbean community still very much present and correct. Mm. And so um, I I guess I didn't, you could call it maybe denial or maybe a healthy sense of proportion, but I didn't overly worry about whether my presence there would be a kind of tipping point for the area or even represent that much for the area. Mm. Does that make sense? Yeah, it makes sense. But on the wider point about gentrification, like I do understand that and I think you're right to bring it up. And I think in general, people should be nudged towards being active in their communities. Like I, I tried to um, be an involved local resident and be part of Halston while I was there. And it was one of the things I loved about it was that you you had that amazing mix. And, and you know, of which uh, Afro-Caribbean was a big part also increasingly uh, Brazilian. I don't know if you... Have you been up to Halston much? I haven't been in... Oh, a few months, because last time I was around that sort of area, it was around Notting Hill Carnival. Yeah. Yeah. And they've got the big carnival mm. uh, shop there where, where they make creations for the carnival. I do want to know how you sort of immerse yourself more in the culture. I'm, I'm intrigued, like, food-wise, just because I love to eat. What did you uh, grow a liking for? There's a fantastic Trinidadian roti 
place. It's supposed to be one, uh, you know, I don't know who, who judges these things, but I remember ordering out there several times and the sense I had was that it was highly revered throughout London and, and that, you know, people who visited from Trinidad would sometimes order their food from there. So that was one. And then there's an amazing, uh, they called it, it's called Blue Mountain, I guess a supermarket, cash and carry, that had the most extraordinary range of West Indian imported goods and fruit and veg as well. Like a very exotic, quite exciting fruit and veg, but also just condiments and sauces and all kinds of pickled goods and stuff that you wouldn't see, definitely wouldn't see in your online Sainsbury's shop and probably would struggle to get in any other place in London. Did it make you feel good to decolonise your palate living in the house? <laughs> you know, I grew up in South London and one of the things we did um, growing up, because my parents, my dad's American, my parents met in Africa where they were teachers. They met in Kampala in Uganda. Right. And um, my mum was t- then went on to teach in Kenya. My brother was born in Uganda. Right. And, um, and then I was born in Singapore. But they both had quite global outlooks in the sense of being curious about the world and being sort of inquisitive and and I would like to think open-minded and so growing up every Sunday for the or, or maybe most Sundays we would go to an Indian restaurant in Putney called the Taj Mahal and my parents cooked a lot of curries when I grew up you know we never had Sunday roasts my parents didn't enjoy cooking traditional British food really so I would say uh like you know the idea of like um Except my granny, when we stayed with my, I've got an American or had an American and an English granny. My English granny, when we stayed with her in Dorset, it was roast beef, toad in the hole, shepherd's pie, you know, all that your standard English dishes. So so that was the closest I had to conventional English cuisine. Mm. I was definitely brought up eating a lot of Indian food. But then West Indian food, I got more of a taste for in Halston. And there's some quite good Middle Eastern food. Although, again, like that stuff that we, I got into as a, you know, in my 20s as well. An old sloppy kebab at the end yeah, of the night. Yeah, exactly. Soak up the alcohol. It's the rite of passage. Yeah. There's so many things I want to talk about. I want to talk about you going out and clubbing in London. Yeah. Because... Yeah, yeah. I think you've got the wrong person for that question. I mean, I know you don't go out, out now. Yeah, I never really did well, you know, that we, much. Yeah, well, yeah, so like, what was your relationship with, with, with nightlife growing up? Were you much of a raver? The mistake I made looking back was, um, I mentioned already that we used to smoke quite a lot of spliff, me and my friends, from the age of about 17. Right. We're talking about really 88. I think it was 88 was the second summer of love. Right. You're too young to remember I'm that. I'm aware of what it is. But basically, um, <laughs> it was the idea of Ibiza and people listening to Acid House and dance music coming forward as the sort of the go-to genre. You know, like instead of going to a gig, you're like, I'm going to go to a club and and wave my, you know, little boxes, big boxes. Big, Do they big still... fish, little fish, cardboard box. Yeah. I'm, I'm aware. And so um, I remember thinking like, oh, I need to get out there and do what the the other kids are doing and... And more often than not, we'd sit around, me and my friends. And where was this happening? South London or West London, more or less South London, either at my house or with uh, friends in West London, friends I'd been to school with. Adam and Joe, you know, Adam okay. Buxton and Joe yeah. Cornish yeah, yeah, yeah. were two of my close friends at the time. I had others. And then, you know, you, you'd, you'd smoke a couple of spliffs. And, Don't uh, worry, you, you, no one's going to come in here and arrest right. you. So, you. You looked really shiftily at no. the door. No, no, because... 
The, the, you see, yeah, you smoke a couple of splits and suddenly like, do you know what? I don't really feel like going out, do you? Like, no, not really. And so as a result, <laughs> do you know what I mean? You get like a slight taste of the fear and suddenly everything seemed intimidating. The idea of leaving the house, you're like, oh, I have to leave the house and... Oh, we might actually have to talk to someone if we get on the bus. Actually, then, oh, it does seem like quite a lot of work. And as a result, I didn't go to a lot of clubs. Plus, clubs didn't play hip-hop, and we liked hip-hop. And most clubs played house. I really never cared for house very much. Do you remember any of the early gigs that you went to in the city? Well, like a lot of hip-hop outfits didn't play in the UK. So we mainly bought the records and listened to it on pirated tapes of, of the radio. But whenever people were coming through, uh, Big Daddy Kane... I think, yeah, I definitely saw Big Daddy Kane. I'm trying to remember. That might have been the only one I saw in London. Right. In that, at that time. Well, that's okay. Well, I'll tell you what. Let's talk about 2019 because I know you went to go and see Rex Orange County recently. Yes, I did, yeah. And you did, in fact, tweet that you felt that you were potentially the oldest person in the room. I said I was a, the oldest one by at least 100 years. <laughs> well, now, where were you feeling your age? What, what venue was this? Brixton Academy. Talk to me about it. I don't think it was the venue. I've seen lots of other acts there. And I've not been conscious of my age. Who else have you seen there? Oh, I mean, I saw The Clash there in, in the early 80s. That's amazing. Yeah. Over the years, I saw the super furry animals there. I saw Weezer there. I saw the Hives there. I saw Beck there. Yeah, so I've seen lots of of acts there. This was the first time I ever took my sons, or my son, it was only one of them, to a gig Um for him, do you know what I mean? Other than I took them to see the Wiggles when they were tiny, but I this mean, is the first time I went. You know, they went to a proper show that they were into for their own reasons, and um, so it was my son and a couple of his friends. So I knew there was a chance I'd be one of the older people. And then looking round, it was extraordinary because I don't think I've ever seen a level of excitement in the audience comparable to that one. I've been to a show of his once, I went to see him at the Village Underground in East London. And and I say this in, in not a shady way, like very saccharine and very, it, there's a there's an innocent sort of teenage, yeah. it, that's just the it's energy you get. unapologetically kind of wide-eyed and enthusiastic for life. Whereas the music I listened to when I was growing up and the music my kids listened to always suggested they were in a hurry to grow up. They wanted, you know, they listened to grime, SoundCloud, rap, music that's about um, lawlessness, danger, sex, drugs, mayhem, right? And certainly that was what I thrilled to when I was their age, sort of 13, 14, Music that sounded like it was a bit too adult for me. Well, rebel music, that is that is yeah. that is part of it's you know, I think that's part of being a teenager, isn't it? It's like I don't listen yeah. to what my mum and dad listen to. I don't yeah. listen to this, whatever this may be. Yeah. Oh music that's got swearing in it and kind of a sense of, of fear, like a free song of danger. So mm. when you when I saw Rex Orange County, it was just the opposite of that. It it was the the stage production involved um, not balloons, but a lot of um, shiny ticker tape and big clouds and not maybe not lollipops, but that kind of it's thing. It's very romantic, isn't it? Very sort of... It's almost... The set was almost Teletubby-esque, but not in a um, off-putting way, but in a way that felt to me kind of fresh and different. I, me- I remember thinking like, well, this is not like anything that we had. And maybe this is their form of rebellion, is embracing a kind of... Um, innocence and a sort of slightly self-conscious uh, wistfulness for youth i really enjoyed it obviously he can play brilliantly and he writes terrific songs but also i was looking around at everyone who was t- half my age 
during observing all of this lovely creativity, were you part of, you know, the standard row of parents that we usually see at gigs? You know, when you're, when you're growing up, well, even now, you will always see a row of parents just standing on the back observing their kids having a great time were you in the trenches like well so first off it was the first time oh maybe not well maybe one of the first times i've ever been to a gig at the brixton academy and i was in the um do they call it what's it the circle the bit the balcony basically at the back instead of being down on the floor there are seats up at the top so i don't know if that's because if you're under 18 that's where you go but either way that's where the kids were and so i was sitting in a row with the three kids I'd come with and then next to them were two or three other kids that another dad had brought. There was a sort of a sprinkling of parentage in amongst the youth, um, <laughs> maybe a ratio of one to 10 or one to 20. It wasn't that we were all in a phalanx at the back. We were kind of integrated. but um, Covert parenting. Yeah, covert parenting, kind of sort of being conscious that we were obscuring the view of whoever happened to be behind us. So we've gone off topic. Louis, mm-hmm. now... As we know, Sadiq Khan is very much the mayor of London. I know you are not desperate for his job, but just in case you wanted to have a day off and you were mayor for a day, what would you do? I think I would pedestrianise the whole of Oxford Street, maybe Tottenham Court Road, most of the West End. I know it would create mayhem, but it would be it would be wonderful, wouldn't it? Yeah. And um, maybe ground all the planes as well. Wow. Do you remember when there was an ash cloud over Spain and there were no planes could fly for about 72 hours? And London, it was like a different city. It was so quiet. You know when a noise stops, you're like, wow, I didn't even know there was a noise, but now I feel relaxed. Right. Maybe like one day a week we could have no flights. Okay. And um, I think we'd do a lot for everyone's peace of mind, sense of tranquility. You know, you can't fly. Sorry, mate. Saturday. We don't fly on a Saturday. It's a quiet day. Stay at home, read a book. Yeah. Maybe yours which is available in all good stores Oh, now. thank you for the plug. <laughs> what else? Do you know, I, a friend I, of mine has on. got a book that you had signed because apparently you walked into a branch of WH Smith in Houston, Houston, Houston and Station. you just thought, hey, do you want to... I was waiting for someone... And I had 15 minutes to kill and I went past a bookshop and they had my book and I thought, well, why don't I sign the books? It's something authors do, actually, if they've got time. It feels a bit embarrassing. And then I just thought, you know what, don't be embarrassed, just go in there. So I went in and said, do you mind if I sign my book? And um, they let me in and then they said, we've got some more stock downstairs would you mind signing that? Oh, yeah. oh, fuck, I was down. like, don't take the piss. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I signed those as well. Yeah, I do that. Yeah. And then they put a sticker on it and they display it more prominently. I see. Okay. So essentially it's, it's actually a wonderful marketing tool. It's a marketing tool. Yeah. It's not like, oh, and then it's like a little surprise when they buy the book. No, it's actually, they display it more prominently and put a sticker on it. It's more likely to be sold. Plus they can't return it to the warehouse. You know, a lot of uh, books they send out from the publishers to the shops. And if they're not sold after a month or whatever, the inventory goes back to the publisher and they put it back in the warehouse. But if it's signed, they can't send it back. Oh, you are very smart. So the, that time when you're in Houston, you're just like, yeah. hang on a minute. I'm yeah. not letting these fuckers send my But book in back. theory, they should be able to sell it. The, sell, the, the signed ones disappear quite quick. Well, you made my friend Josh very happy. Oh, good. I do want to talk just very briefly because she sounds wonderful. What's your London love story? Uh, well, you know, because I talked about it on Desert Island Yes, yeah, so I don't want to go into... I mean, I well, we, yes. we worked at the BBC together. Right, okay. She was at History Doc. 
docs. I was in my own little bit where I was making my docs. This was around 2002. I began seeing her around the White City building. Mm-hmm. And I remember thinking, wow, she's beautiful. Like she looked sort of like a French chanteuse. And she was f- sort of fashionable, but not so, but sort of not aggressively stylish, more kind of people didn't really say hipster in those days, but she had a touch of hipster and uh, she would smoke (laughs) quite a a lot. She would go out and smoke cigarettes outside in front of the building. So I saw her on these little trips. I would pass her in the corridors as she went out to smoke her cigarettes. And then at a Christmas party, I um, was introduced and I said, oh yeah, I think I've seen you around. And then later on, she made fun of me for saying that. She claims she once spoke to me in a lift before then and that I didn't answer which I find hard to believe, but I suppose it's possible that I was too aloof. She said something like, oh, these lifts take ages or something. And I was like, mm, whatever. Um, and so we spoke for the first time there at that Christmas party. And then it was like a Friday night. And, and I said, funnily enough, I'm going in tomorrow to catch up on stuff. She said, I'm going in as well. Uh-huh. And um, I think I drank too much. I went in late. So when I arrived, there was just a note on my desk saying like, oh, I came and went, but where were you kind of thing? I said, oh, well, let's try for next Saturday. And we went out for a meal and it all went for that. Nice. Where's your regular date spot in the city? Do you have one? For a while, we went for a um, weekly movie and we'd often do it in West London. We used to do it quite often in W8. Not far from here, Kensington. Right, okay. There used to be a cinema, which I think they tore down and then they built, I think there's still a cinema, but they it became a yuppie flat type plus cinema on the sort of the western end of Kensington High Street near Olympia. There's a Thai restaurant and there's a couple of good Middle Eastern restaurants where we would get a shawarma or a kebab or something or go for a Thai and then we'd go see a movie or sometimes Westfield which I have mixed feelings about. The, the thing is, the cinemas are really good, like the sound and the seats, but you do feel like you're in Terminal 5 of Heathrow, It feels don't a bit you? clinical. I mean, it's beyond clinical. It feels like, I mean, clinical I'd quite like. That makes it feel like a hospital, whereas <laughs> Westfield feels like, um, I get sort of jet lag. Okay, so... Because it's lightless. There's no light. And in the evening you go along, you know they turn the music up. They do, don't they? Yeah. Okay, so I thought so, I was imagining yeah, that. Yeah, no, but you, they don't turn it up enough for you to feel like, it's like, it's weird, the music seems a bit louder. So it's like this vast kind of emporium of things that you don't really want to buy. Anyway, don't get me started. I, I, I kind of I like, like eating in, quite often we'd go to Pizza Express in the W12 centre, which used to be London's worst shopping centre because after Westfield came up, it was like it lost its its whole reason for existing. So it became like a zombie post-apocalyptic shopping centre where half of the shops were vacant and the other half were taken up with. There was a Weatherspoons pub, sure. a very large and slightly scary looking Chinese buffet, several charity shops, some pound stretchers and then the cinema. And you always felt like this is the saddest shopping centre in London. And I like I quite liked that because you didn't feel like you were kind of a a marketing demographic. Giving you know? it giving the money to the man. Yeah. You just thought this place is lost. I'm helping out. It was like, yeah, this desperate roadside attraction that had fallen on hard times. You felt invisible. When I lived in Halston, I remember 
about a year after I moved in, the McDonald's. I write about this in my book, the McDonald's, because I was secretly flag, hoping. Guys, like, I've got, I mean, <laughs> I got, given what you said, like about gentrification, there was a part of me was like, well, I hope it does. Like, at least I'd like to see a few shops, like a few different shops opening up, like recognizable chains. I know that's probably a bad thing to confess, but but when McDonald's closed down, I thought, what's happening? Like, I don't think McDonald's closed down. Like, what's wrong with a place that can't support a McDonald's? McDonald's. And then a subway opened and I thought, yes, good times. Oh, no. And, um, and then they got a Holland and Barrett. And I thought, now we're on our way. And, um, <laughs> and then a Costa Coffee arrived and I was like, all right, my work is done here. I can leave. <laughs> Goodbye. Yeah. And he left Halston. Um, Louis Theroux, thank you. Thank you. For showing me your city. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much for listening to this sissy. Now do take the recommendations seriously. And if you happen to go to any of the places mentioned, do let me know by posting a picture using the hashtag ThisCityPod and make sure you tell them who sent you and try and get a discount or something. Um, I've been your host, Clara Anfo, and this podcast is available everywhere. You can get it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify and CastBox. And if you like what you heard, which I hope you did, uh, please rate, review and tell your friends. I mean, we do like five stars. We'll accept four, but five is the sweet spot. Um, Thank you again for listening. This has been a Sony Music fourth floor creative production.